0: That is uh, one of my boys' favorite songs uh, to sing uh, in the evening. In fact, the other day I was humming that during the day, and uh, one of my sons says, "Dada, can we sing that one tonight uh, at bedtime?" And I said, "Absolutely." How do you how do you deny a request like that, right? Uh, well, I would uh, invite you uh, to open up to John chapter nine, uh, and I want to begin this morning just by. Uh, by reading uh, the passage that we're going to look at first uh, and then uh, diving into it. But if you would uh, open up your copy of God's Word, uh, find John chapter 9, verse 35, uh, and follow along with me. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word now. That you would bless the hearing of your word now. Lord, that you would move us to a deeper worship of you. Lead us and guide us into a growing understanding of who You are, of who Your Son is, of all that He has done on our behalf. Help us to praise You and adore You, to thank You and worship You for Your great, great mercy this morning. We lift these prayers and these requests up to You in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, Leonardo uh, da Vinci uh, is undoubtedly the most famous uh, painter in all of western uh, history and uh, his most famous painting uh, is the Mona Lisa Uh, and uh, that very famous painting is located currently in uh, the Louvre Museum uh, in Paris Uh, and it's estimated that that museum has about 8 million visitors every single year Uh, and most of them come specifically to look at The Mona Lisa. Uh, And one of the techniques that uh, Leonardo da Vinci used uh, to bring added life to his paintings uh, was uh, when he was beginning a painting, he would do what he called uh, an underpainting on uh, canvas or whatever material he was using. And he he would do this in kind of a neutral gray or brown. uh, And he would do this painting and then he would add layers and layers on top of that uh, initial drawing uh, and he would do these uh, added layers in a transparent glaze of, of different shades and different colors. So he, he's doing the, the initial painting and then adding layer upon layer upon layer uh, to add a, uh, a depth Uh, and a unique coloring to the painting. And all of these layers would work together uh, to uh, accomplish what you couldn't normally accomplish just by mixing uh, paints on a palette and then throwing them on a canvas. Uh, One of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, biographers, a recent biography by Walter Isaacson, spoke spoke about this method, and he said this, uh, that this method allowed him to produce luminous tones And the light would pass through the layers and reflect back from the primer coat on that base layer, making it seem as if the light was emanating from the figures and objects themselves. And that's where you you think about the the Mona Lisa if you've ever seen just a a digital picture of it. uh, it, It's quite an amazing uh, coloring, and she's got a unique uh, expression on her face and all of these things, but the idea of that there is a light shining or reflecting back from the bottom of this painting, the base layer, reflecting outwards because of the way Leonardo painted this. Now, and uh, the Apostle John is going to do something similar throughout his gospel, uh, and specifically in each chapter or in each portion that we've looked at, he's giving us a, a different portrait uh, of Jesus uh, that gives us a, a greater understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. And, and he's giving us these different portraits of Jesus, all to, to aim uh, us in the direction of faith. Uh, that's what he says at the, at the end of his gospel. He gives a purpose statement that he's writing uh, all of these things that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, and uh, the, the portrait that is painted for us here in John chapter 9 is an absolute masterpiece. Uh, and uh, it is uh, an absolute masterpiece because uh, the the apostles' goal in this chapter uh, is to allow the light of Christ to shine forth in the healing of this man who has been born blind. Uh, if we were to, to look and examine this chapter kind of along the lines of how Leonardo da Vinci w- would do his paintings, you could say that the base layer uh, that is going to be added upon and added upon in this chapter is seen in verses 1 through 3, the very beginning of the chapter, As he passed by, speaking of Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the base layer of this painting. Uh, The rest of the chapter is going to build upon that. That everything that's going to take place is going to be for the glory of God. Uh, That the works of God might be put on display uh, and that we would see uh, color and depth uh, and an amazing beauty uh, of who Jesus is and what he accomplishes for us. Now, this man was was born blind, not because of sin, but so that the works of God would be displayed in him. That's that's the base layer. But then uh, the next layer uh, is the power of Jesus. Because in verses 4 through 7, what did Jesus do? He made a a paste of his saliva and uh, of clay, or or made this mud paste, spread it on the man's eyes, and then he commanded the man, he said, hey, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And then amazingly, the man did exactly that. He obeyed Jesus, Uh, he stepped out in faith, and he went, stumbled along, went to the pool of Siloam. Uh, And the end of verse 7 says it very simply and and pointedly, that the man went... He washed and he returned with his sight. What what an understatement of this miracle. But that's what we begin to see. And then uh, as we looked last week at verses 8 through 34, then the man testified to his neighbors about how Jesus had healed him. And then he stood bravely against the interrogations of the religious leaders. The Pharisees call him uh, to give an account. So what did this man do to you? How do you have your sight? Were you really born blind? Are you the same man? they ask all of these questions. And ultimately, this man refused to deny Jesus. He acknowledged Jesus to be a prophet. And he even implied that he was a disciple of Jesus. And because of this, the Pharisees, at the end of verse 34, they expel him from the synagogue. This man's refusal to back down cost him dearly. In essence, he was kicked out of Jewish society. And as we will see, going back to the base layer, all of this would be to the glory of God. All of this. And if there are still more layers to add to this portrait, and if that base layer was, was God's glory, and then another layer was uh, the healing power of Jesus, and then another layer was the cost of discipleship, uh, the layer that we're going to look at this morning might be the features of faith. Uh, a layer of what does it really look like to have faith and trust in Jesus? And how are we to understand faith? And this morning, in these verses that we read, we're going to see the man who was born blind interacting with Jesus for a second time. Now, we saw Jesus in verses 1 through 7, and then he disappeared. Verses 8 through 34 were all about that man who had been healed. Now, this is going to be a second interaction between this man and Jesus. And this man is going to see Jesus for the first time. He was healed when he was blind, and now he's actually going to see Jesus. And as he sees Jesus, we are going to see a portrait of faith. And this portrait of faith is going to teach us about what it means to really look to Jesus in faith. And w- what does our faith consist of? What should it lead to? And we're going to see four features of faith in Christ in this passage. There's four verses, four features. Now, the first of these features is in the very first line of verse 35, and we will see this, that faith depends upon Jesus finding us. Verse 35 begins, and Jesus heard that they had cast him out and found him, and having found him, he said, and so imagine how that man felt at this point in time, right? He was able to see for the, for the first time in his life that he had been living in complete darkness, and then he was suddenly healed. That's got to be like the best day of his entire life. But then just within that same day or a few days later, his parents have abandoned him. They've said, no, we don't know what's happened. You go, you go talk to him. They were afraid. They wouldn't stand up for their son out of fear of the Pharisees. So the son was abandoned and then completely kicked out of the synagogue. So so think about that. Extreme high, he is now able to see to like, probably feeling alone and isolated now, completely ostracized. And while this man is at a low point, what is Jesus doing? Jesus has heard that he's been kicked out of the synagogue. He has heard that he has been cast out and expelled. And what is Jesus doing? Unbeknownst to this man, Jesus is searching for him. We know that he is searching for him because what does the text say? It says that Jesus found him. Well, finding something means that you were looking for it. This man is in a low point and Jesus is searching for him. And he's doing this because Jesus cares for all of those who are persecuted on his behalf. Jesus is is always concerned with the suffering of his people. He's not apathetic when he sees his people suffering for his sake. And so Jesus acts on our behalf, searching for us, pursuing us, and ultimately finding us because this is what he does. And while this man had obeyed Jesus' instructions to be healed, and he had actually stood against the, the questions of uh, the Pharisees, all of these things, there was still that this more that this man needed to know about Jesus. His knowledge and his experience with Jesus was not enough up until now. And there was more for him to learn and know. And because of this, Jesus searched for and found him. Uh, and what Jesus does here... In searching for and finding is what jesus is going to be speaking about in john chapter 10 all of all of this fits together because john chapter 10 you may have a, a heading there what is the beginning of john chapter 10 say in your bible the esv i said it says i am the good shepherd see jesus is going to contrast himself as the good and faithful shepherd in contrast to the false shepherds the pharisees of israel what does the good shepherd do When one of his sheep wanders away, he pursues them. He goes and and finds them. He searches them out. He doesn't just say, well, may the elements be merciful to that sheep. May, May the wolves be gentle with him. A good shepherd doesn't do that. He goes and searches. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. Another time this is spoken about of what a good shepherd does, Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14 Jesus is the good shepherd who searches for and finds his sheep. That's what we saw earlier in John's gospel, John chapter 6, that God the Father has given a people to God the Son. Uh, And he has given those people so that Jesus would save them, that Jesus would go to the cross to die for them. So people have been given to Jesus, and Jesus is going to be faithful to find them and to save them. And in all of this, Uh, We see that it is the triune God who works to save us. He's the one who initiates salvation. He's the one who accomplishes salvation. He's the one who applies salvation to our hearts. We don't do those things on our own. What does the Bible say that we do? Well, we go our own way. Uh, All of us have sinned and wandered from God. But, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what did he do? He sent Christ to die for us. God takes that initiative. We receive all that he has done, but we don't initiate. That's where Jesus said back in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus, one of these religious leaders, he says, you must be born again that no one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now now this changes the way that we view and think about our own salvation, right? Sinners do not save ourselves. Uh, We are saved by God. Sinners do, do not move toward God. We move away from Him. He moves toward us. Sinners do not cleanse themselves. We are only cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And when we are lost, it is Jesus who finds us. We don't go find him. We don't stumble upon him somehow. But he's the one who searches for and saves us. This this is the good news of the gospel because if it was up to us, we would be sure to mess it up. Uh, We would be sure to to fumble on the one-yard line if we even got that far. Uh, And that uh, is the good news of the gospel. If it was under our control we would still be lost. We would still be blind. We would still be in bondage to sin. But this is the first feature of faith that we see here, that faith depends upon Jesus finding us. But then there's a a second feature at the end of verse 35, that faith answers the all-important question. Jesus searches for, finds this man, and his first words to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is the the, the question of all questions, right? the most important question. And in asking this question, Jesus was not asking, do you believe that the Son of Man exists? Sort of like you you would say, well, do you believe Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny exists? That's not the the question here. Uh, the, The question is a question about trust. Do you trust completely in the Son of Man? And if you trust completely in the Son of Man, you're no longer trusting in yourself. You're no longer relying upon your own efforts, your own works, your own goodness, or anything that you have to offer. Now, the question here, again, the, the first words, the most important issue in this man's life that Jesus immediately addresses says, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? Again, this is the, the second interaction that Jesus has with this man, and he, he sees him and doesn't waste any words. He immediately goes, and this interaction, this this second conversation after a man is healed by Jesus and then separated for a time, reminds us uh, of John chapter 5. John chapter 5 began with a man who was a paralytic for 38 years, and Jesus healed him, uh, and the man got up and walked, didn't even bother to learn Jesus' name, but later on Jesus finds him, John chapter 5, verse 14 and following. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And and the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And that that man in John chapter 5 uh, he took the healing from Jesus and wanted nothing more from him. Uh, I'll take the healing, but I want nothing else to do with you. And I'll actually go and uh, tell the, the Pharisees what you've done and how you've broken the Sabbath. And this man going and telling the Pharisees leads to a greater persecution of Jesus by these religious leaders. And how you respond to this question, who do you say the Son of Man is, Or do you believe in the Son of Man? This is, this is the continental divide uh, for all humanity. Well, what is a continental divide? It's that, that watershed point. So, the continental divide for North America uh, is along uh, the highest ridge of the, the Rocky Mountains. Okay, think of it this way: uh, when, it, when a drop of rain falls on the western slopes of those uh, mountains or uh, anywhere else, that water ultimately flows where? To the Pacific. Uh, or ultimately to the Gulf of Mexico, which is, again, part of the Pacific. Uh, But if it falls on the eastern side of that continental divide, where does it flow? All the way, really, to the Gulf of Mexico because the Mississippi Basin is enormous. So where that drop of water falls in relationship to that continental divide determines ultimately where it's going to uh, spend uh, the duration of its evaporated life, so to speak. Uh, of where it falls and where it lands is going to determine its destiny. And, and this question is that watershed. It is that continental divide for all of humanity. What we say about who Jesus is and are we willing to trust in him determines our destiny for eternity. This is the most important question that anybody faces. Uh, and you could say, what is it that makes this question the most important question? Well, when pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, provided three reasons that I cannot improve upon, so I'll quote them for you here. Uh, he, the first reason that he gives on why this question is the most important question is that it concerns salvation. Right, John 3:36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, who we. Uh, believe Jesus to be is going to lead to our salvation uh, or to our condemnation. This question concerns salvation. Secondly, this question concerns the only way of salvation. Uh, This isn't just a matter of, yes, this pertains to one way of being saved. This is very clearly in Scripture taught that Jesus is the only way. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus himself says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 The apostles, as they preach, say this, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The question concerns the only way of salvation. And then thirdly, this question allows no exemptions. Now, there's nothing that excludes you from having to answer this question. If you're playing Monopoly, there's a get-out-of-jail-free card right? You you get thrown into jail. You're like, Oh, I play this card and I'm out. You are exempt from going to jail, but there is no exemption from having to answer this question. And even just think about the life of this man that we're seeing in John chapter nine. What has he already done in his relationship with Jesus? He has been healed by Jesus. He has obeyed Jesus. He went and, and washed and was healed. He has endured persecution and suffering for Jesus. And yet When Jesus comes face to face with him, what's the first thing Jesus addresses? Do you believe? That is the most pressing issue that none of us can avoid. Yes, we can avoid the question now, but we can't avoid it later. It is the all-important question. And none of us here are exempt from answering this question, no matter how many times or how long you have been attending church, and no matter how many times you have read the Bible, uh, no matter if you are a church kid or a pastor's kid, uh, if as you talk to people, there are an amazing number of pastor's kids at our church. I'll uh, let you figure out who those are. But uh, uh, we have a lot. Uh, and if you're a pastor's kid, you're not exempt. And even if you are a pastor, you are not exempt. Uh, the 19th century uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, he, he told this account. He spoke of a pastor whom he knew who had been converted suddenly while he was preaching. Because the pastor was much like the man who had been born blind and he had obeyed Christ and he had passed through a considerable spiritual experience and he had witnessed for Christ and even suffered for some degree. And Nevertheless, he was not converted. So there's one Sunday when he's preaching the truth of the gospel and in that moment as he's preaching the gospel, he is taken up by that truth and understands He hasn't really trusted in this truth that he himself is preaching and has been suffering for. And the congregation began to notice the the emotional transformation of the preacher as he was proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Uh, And someone there actually stood up and said, The preacher is converted. Hallelujah. And the others said, Well, we believe he is too. And the pastor stopped preaching and added, he says, I believe you are right. Something wonderful has happened to me. I do believe on Jesus. And the whole congregation stood and sang the doxology. Think about that. There is nobody who is exempt from this most basic, most essential, all-important question. Uh, and because this is the most basic and all-important question it's not one that we should just speed past we have to answer this and wrestle with this and again it's not just do you believe that jesus existed at one point in time in the past the question is do you trust in him completely no longer trusting in yourself the good news is also that this can be settled instantly, right? Even as what we're going to see, the, the man who was born blind is going to come to faith in Christ in this passage. As we just heard about that pastor who, as he is preaching and proclaiming the gospel, that in that moment he also believed it. That, that question can be answered at any point in time by looking to Christ in faith. And if so if you haven't done that, look to him in faith. Trust in him and no longer in yourself. Faith depends upon Jesus finding us, yes, but then faith also answers the all-important question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? But then there's a, a third feature that we see here in verses 36 and 37. This is that faith implies a growing understanding of Jesus. If you look with me at those verses, the man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, "You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you." Now, and so this this man who was formerly blind did not know Jesus in a saving way up until this point, but he he was interested in in learning more, right? He doesn't scoff and say, "I don't need this." He says, "Well, well, who is this person that you're speaking about that, that I may believe in him? Tell tell me more." And Jesus is going to to reveal himself to the man and and to show him. Uh, And what's interesting uh, is that Jesus says, you have seen him, right? But you're like, wait a second, this man just started seeing. So so in what sense has he been seeing Jesus for uh, a time past? It's a a unique kind of construction there in the Greek, implying that uh, this man is, is close to faith and has seen Jesus even though he has been blind. This man is in process. He is growing in his understanding. Jesus says, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Uh, And what we see here is Jesus, lovingly, caringly, patiently, like a good shepherd, is bringing his sheep along uh, in a growing understanding concerning who he is and all that he has done. And Jesus is doing this all the time with his disciples. And Jesus loves to ask questions of his disciples. Jesus asked a a similar question uh, to this uh, of his disciples back in Matthew chapter 16. If you guys want to turn back there with me, uh, you see that from the very beginning of his ministry, there's this increasing revelation to the disciples. uh, And Jesus is constantly uh, working and and pulling them along, teaching them and then asking questions and and trying to bring them to a, a growing understanding concerning who he is. So Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he's drilling down into this most important question. right? And initially, it's who do people say that the Son of Man is? And verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Uh, And so the the disciples answer his question because it says, who do people say that the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, is? And and they give all of these responses. But those are the responses of how other people view Jesus. And so Jesus asks a follow-up question. Verse 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And the disciples can't escape from this question. And then Peter one of the, the times where he speaks quickly and speaks rightly. Uh, other times it's open mouth and insert foot. But this time he does a good job. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Jesus w- was pulling his disciples along, teaching and instructing them, asking questions to help bring them to a growing understanding of who he is. And then also, verse 17, just to to again prove that the first point, that Jesus is the one who finds us, that God is the one who initiates. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter made the proclamation, but who is the one who taught and revealed that to Peter? God the Father. Now, and again, there, there's a growing revelation a growing understanding of who Jesus is and and here in chapter 16 Jesus uh asks this question uh pushes for an answer Peter proclaims it and then it's going to continue in this process of revealing who he is if you turn over just to Matthew chapter 17 the very beginning look at the heading what do we see the transfiguration and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will take, make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And There's a a growing revelation, uh, a growing understanding of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. These are revelations of who Jesus is, but look, even what's sandwiched in the middle the, the passage of Matthew chapter 16 that we skipped over, it's where Jesus says, now, now that you know who I am, I'm going to go and be crucified. And Peter says, no, 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 we can't do that. Again, open mouth, insert foot, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's amazing, this is what Jesus is always striving to do with his people. He is always growing us, always revealing himself to us in an increasing way because our faith should always be growing. Our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf should always be uh, increasing and then we're applying that to our lives. And sometimes uh, our growth in faith is slow. Uh, the, the world's smallest tree uh, can be found, or the slowest-growing tree is a, uh, a white cedar tree that's growing out of a cliffside uh, in Canada around the, the Great Lakes region. And this, this tree is 155 years old, and it's 4 inches tall. Slowest-growing tree. Sometimes our growth comes at a steady pace, like a southern magnolia, which grows about a foot a year, uh, but it reaches heights of about 80 to 120 feet And sometimes our spiritual growth uh, is exponential and rapid. Someone who's brand new to the faith is like speeding past other people, similar to the the way that uh, a giant sea kelp grows up to two feet every single day. Think about that. Faith in Christ grows over time, and sometimes uh, faith in Christ is growing even before we make a proclamation of faith in Christ. That's what we see here in John chapter 9, right? And this man has been has obeyed Jesus. He's been healed by Jesus. He's suffered for Jesus. And then right now is when he's going to come to faith in Christ. He's already done all of these things. All, there's been a growth process in this man's life even before he comes to faith. might call this... Uh, if this here, in John chapter 9, verses 35 and 38, if, if this is evangelism, this is, this is Jesus saying, who do you believe in? Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is evangelism, which makes everything prior to it kind of a pre-evangelism, so to speak. And that pre-evangelism is that, that journey uh, that we take, uh, kind of that l- we see the Lord leading us uh, into spiritual interests. Uh, the Lord working to draw Himself to us over a period of time. Now, and most of us, as we examine our own testimonies, we would see, uh, in looking back, maybe a a when and a how of how the Lord worked to bring us into relationship with Himself. For me, myself, as I look back at my own personal testimony, uh, I, there was a, a low point, a very discouraging point in college uh, that the Lord used uh, to draw himself or to draw me to himself. Uh, the Lord used that discouraging time, and at the very same time of a, a great discouragement, he brought me alongside several Christians. and I began to read the Bible, uh, and really reading the Bible, of like, okay, I want to know, really, what is this saying? Uh, and, and reading the Bible, and then suddenly having some spiritual conversations with a, a Christian family that opened up their home to me. And the Lord used those things in a pre-evangelism way to begin to to draw me. And then there was that crisis moment where a a dramatic change happened in the sense that I prayed the sinner's prayer and I I looked to Christ truly in faith, even though I was starting to, to wrestle with the gospel and the things of Christianity. But most of us come to faith in this way, exactly as this man here does. And again, we, we have to allow this to, to inform our understanding of salvation, our understanding of evangelism, our understanding of discipleship. Right? Faith doesn't sprout to the highest of elevations overnight. It grows steadily over time. It's climbing that mountain one step at a time over the course of many, many years. So parents we have to keep this in mind as we teach as we uh, disciple as we share the gospel with our own kids All right should we ex- expect like I shared the gospel once and then they're like then my four-year-old repented and now he's good like that that doesn't happen right we, we have to understand that, that faith is this process it is progress for sure and true faith is going to grow we also need to keep this in mind as we share the gospel with others Right, and it's okay for, for not every single conversation that we have with someone who doesn't know Jesus has to end with a full gospel presentation. Okay? Well, hey, pre-evangelism is okay, talking about spiritual things, a- answering questions, doing doing so much. But also, th- this principle is not just about how we speak about Jesus with others. This this is also very much about ourselves. Are we growing is our faith increasing is there a growing understanding of who jesus is and what he has done on our behalf is that present in our lives we should always be seeking to grow in our relationship with him seeking to know more and more about him and and if we are not seeking to grow again that means something but we don't just speed past that like oh that's meaningless like no True faith is going to be growing, even slowly, even though 155 years and it's four inches tall. Uh, again, true faith is going to be growing and increasing, hopefully faster than that growth rate, but it should be growing. And if we are not growing in our understanding and in our relationship of, with Jesus, that, that means something, and it means probably something needs to change in our lives. Maybe priorities need to be rearranged. Maybe sin needs to be confessed and repented of. Maybe we need to to turn off screens and and spend more time with the Lord in, in prayer and in his word. Maybe habits need to change and activities need to be forsaken. Whatever it is that is keeping us from growing in our relationship with Jesus, we have to be willing to identify it and then let it go. Maybe some radical amputation is is needed in those areas. But faith is going to grow. Faith depends upon Jesus finding us. Faith answers that all-important question, and faith implies a growing understanding of Jesus. And then finally, in verse 38, faith results in an overwhelming worship. If you look at this verse, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So this man, again, having never seen Jesus before, he didn't just recognize him by sight. Maybe Jesus' voice was a little bit familiar to him, right? Are you the person who healed me? But but Jesus comes up, asks this question. The man asks for more information. Well, who is the Son of Man that I may believe in him? And Jesus says... I am the Son of Man. And this man is just overwhelmed. He is now face to face with the one who has healed him. Face to face with the man who has changed his life. And upon this realization, he is just overwhelmed. He professes faith in Jesus as the Son of Man. And he falls down and worships him. Expresses uh, an, an attitude uh, of adoration and appreciation for who Jesus is. And the idea, that, uh, the Greek word here, is that the man fell down and prostrated himself. And you, many of you have probably seen those those video clips on social media when someone in the armed services may have been deployed overseas uh, for many months or, or years, and uh, they, they come home secretly. And they surprise uh, their family uh, in some kind of unique way. And what do the family members do when they when they see uh, their loved one for the first time in a long, long time? How do they respond? They're overwhelmed. Uh, There's uh, excitement. There's joy, but usually there's also tears. Uh, There's weeping and embracing. And that's what I would imagine this was a little bit like right here. That, that this man sees Jesus and he is just absolutely overwhelmed that he gets to behold the one who has healed him and who is now his Lord. He says, I believe, Lord. And he fell down and worshiped. We are all called to worship Jesus in this way fall at his feet in adoration and appreciation. And what's amazing here is that this man fell down at Jesus' feet to worship him, and Jesus didn't correct him. Right? Jesus didn't say, no, don't, don't do that. See, there's other places in Scripture when either an apostle or an angel uh, appears or is, is seen, and someone bows down in worship of them. In Acts chapter 10, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Cornelius wanted to worship Peter, and Peter says, No, 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 don't do that. Get up. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And that, that correction, that, that redirecting, don't worship me, worship God. Jesus doesn't do that here. He accepts this man's worship. And this shows us this is appropriate. This is how we should respond to Jesus. But This is how we, we should respond to Jesus, but is this how we have responded to Jesus? Right? Are we overwhelmed by who Jesus is and what he has done for us? Or does that kind of become too familiar? And do you know what familiarity breeds? Contempt. Well, we can't let who Jesus is and what he has done become so familiar that we are not overwhelmed in thinking about all that he has done on our behalf how he has saved us. And our salvation is no less miraculous than the healing of this man who was born blind. Every single one of us, if we have trusted in Christ, we should be overwhelmed with worship for our Savior. That's what we see here. As Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage, he he said this, and speaking about this man's response to Jesus, that he acted as a believer. He worshipped him. And this proves how his face had grown. And I should like to ask you, who are the people of God, when you are the happiest. My happiest moments are when I am worshipping God, really adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the nearest approach to what it will be in heaven where day without night they offer perpetual adoration unto him who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Hence what a memorable moment it was for this man when he worshipped Christ. Now if Christ was not God, then that man was all idolater, a man worshiper. If Christ was not God, we are not Christians. We are deceived dupes. We are idolaters as bad as the, the heathen whom we now pity. It is making a man into a God, if that is the supreme delight of our being, uh, to worship him. But blessed is his holy name. He is God. And we feel that it is the supreme delight of our being to worship him. And we cannot cover our feet with our wings as the angels do, but we do take his blood and his righteousness both as a covering for our feet and as wings with which we fly up to him. And as though as yet we have no crowns to cast at his dear feet, yet if we have any honor, any good repute, any grace, anything that is comely, anything that is honest, we lay it all at his feet and cry, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory for your mercy and for your truths pray that that would be our response. That would be the desire of our heart as we ponder this man's faith, as we ponder these four features of faith that we have seen here. That faith depends upon Jesus finding us. That faith answers an all-important question. That faith implies a growing understanding of Jesus. And faith results in an overwhelming worship.